Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome all to the 35th episode of The Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about how to quit being so angry at each other and how to straighten out our priorities in our marriages, in our friendships, in our social media, and in our world in general. It's not easy, but it is simple, and it comes down to one little five-letter word. We'll dig deeply into that word today. But first, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage. It's called The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. It argues that the most rebellious thing you can do in this world is to get married and live that marriage the way it was intended to be lived. To get it, go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up at the top of the right sidebar. You'll get the ebook right away and then have an opportunity to sign up for my mailing list. And if you do that, each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Also, um, a lot of people have been asking me lately, you know, do you have a study guide for Lovable? How do I get my hands on some formal way of working through the ideas in this book? That, I hope, is going to be ready very soon. I want to have it for you by the end of July, the end of this month. Um, and so to be sure you don't miss the news and the links to where, to where you can get that study guide for free, make sure you sign up for my email there at drkellyflanagan.com. You'll get an email with a notification of that when it's ready. Uh, also, of course, when you sign up for my email list, you'll get a free sample of Lovable. Um, but if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold in paperback and digital and audio, so you can get it wherever you want to buy books. Um, I think that's it uh, for this week. So now, uh, on to this week's episode, Overcoming Our Anger by Surrendering to Something Else. Thanks, as always, for listening in. Hello Facebook Live, welcome to week 34 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Let's Hold Each Other Like We're Dying. Today we're going to talk about how attention to our mortality can radically reshape our reality, making it less angry, more tender, and expanding our sense of belonging to include all people. Before we get into this week's topic though, let's check in. Last week we focused on how our intimacy in our places of belonging is limited by our secrets, and we talked about practicing sharing small secrets with the people we love. I'd love to hear about your experiences with secret telling or any other experiences you want to share in the midst of this year of listening, loving, and living. And as you are sort of thinking about what you want to share uh, from last week or previous weeks, I thought I'd share with you sort of an insight I had into myself this last in, during these last two weeks as I as I practiced this idea of telling secrets and paying attention to secrets I was keeping. Um, it was not an easy insight. It was sort of painful, um, but the insight that I had about myself is that 
Um, I can't share my secrets with other people until I share them with myself, that I actually keep secrets from myself. And what I mean by that is that I have, I have knowledge and awareness that sort of lurks at the edges of my consciousness that is sort of unpleasant and that I, that I push away, um, that I ignore, that I don't, that I try not to think about. Um, and I think these sort of constitute the secrets that I'm keeping from myself. Um, so, you know, a really common one for me is, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm using my phone too much again, right? Um, I'm, I'm not modeling something well for the kids, but I'll go two, three weeks, sort of knowing that kind of in the back of my mind, but not really paying attention to it. Um, this week in particular, I had sort of this awareness that I realized I've had for about 20 years, um, and I pushed it away for 20 years, that an important relationship of mine isn't as mutual as I thought it was. Um, I pushed that away for a couple decades. Um, what else? I mean, there's so many things. I'm being selfish about this. Um, I, I, I really should have gotten back to that person. I'm, all these things that we sort of know, but we don't let ourselves really um, be told by ourselves. So one of the insights for me this week about secret keeping was that I have to, I have to stop keeping secrets for myself <laughs> before I can share those secrets, uh, those, that, that awareness, that knowledge, that reality with other people. So, um, something that came to me this week and would love to hear what else might have arisen for each of you um, this week or again anything related to to this year of listening loving and living steve writes secrets meaning putting words to the awareness of an emotional dysfunction or eruption of internal disruption of internal peace i think that's a really steve thanks for sort of uh operationally defining it yeah um yeah and that you know um sometimes we're Sometimes we're trying to put words to it and we, you know, the, the journey to actually understand it and, and translate it into linguistic form is a difficult one. That doesn't, to me, feel like secret, secret keeping. That, that feels like healing. Um, the secret keeping is not getting started with that journey, right? Like, mm, there's something uncomfortable floating around in here, something not right, something, and I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to understand it better. I don't want to learn from it. Um, and so our unconscious or our you know, subconscious becomes this repository of our own personal secrets. Um, I think that is the idea, Steve. Thanks for clarifying that. Brenda writes, I get that admitting secret keeping from myself. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. There's so much of the relationship between people that is as much an inward journey as an outward journey between them, right? I mean, there's so much of that. It's almost like once... Once you've got the inward journey figured out, the the outward journey just gets really simple. And that's that's why lovable is arranged the way it is with act one focusing on embracing our true self. That that process can can really straighten out our relationships. I, I remember a metaphor once that I wanted to write about, and I never did. Um, it was a photographer, a really great photographer, who told me that the key to taking portraits is getting the eyes right. Um, and that if you got the eyes right, everything else in the portrait would fall into place. And I feel like that's a little bit like what we're talking about here. If we get the inside right of us, right, if we, if we can be as healthy as possible in our inner world, then our outer world sort of snaps into focus. And, um, and that's a hard journey sometimes, but it's worth it.
Joy writes, I can't stay on long, though that few minutes was insightful. I relate to what you're saying. Um, I could quickly acknowledge a secret about a friend. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, Joy. Uh, it was, again, not easy, um, and it's not a one-time thing. It's like, oh, wait, once I realize that I'm keeping secrets from myself, I pay attention to those. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of secret telling going on in my head right now, and, uh, and that can be difficult. But um, in the long run, um, I think as we talk about constantly here in this podcast and on the blog, um, all difficult things when lived well can be redemptive as well. So I hope that's the case for you, Joy, with that friendship as well. Joy writes, as it relates to my hearing something in her voice and me not, not following up with misunderstanding um, or now following up with misunderstanding. Yep. Um, yeah, right? Like, I assumed someone was saying this. Um, I'm sort of hesitating to address it. I'm pushing that awareness of wanting to do that to the, to the edges of my consciousness. Um, I need to let myself in on that secret that actually that, that needs to be dealt with. That's a great example. And then Joy adds, my other secret is that I say I'm going to work on my book and I don't. <laughs> yep. Uh, boy, I can relate to that, Joy. Joy writes, so I'm signing off to work on my book and I will follow up and um, re-listen to this later. I resonate with your inner work, which I value tending to in myself. All right, people. Um, if... And I can't believe I'm saying this. I'll, I'll go to the podcast alone today if I have to. If all two dozen of you want to sign off right now <laughs> to go tend to a secret, uh, go tend to an insight, go do it. All right? Um, Joy, thanks for modeling that for us. I love it. Deb F. writes, isn't it so much easier to see other, other secrets than our own? We think we are keeping them hidden, but for the most part, they tend to come through. <laughs> that's To me, that's the... Um, Deb, that's so well said, and it's one of the beauties of true belonging, is that your people probably probably know your your own secrets better than you do, right? The secrets you're keeping from yourself, um, and if you trust them, and if they uh, if you trust that they have your best interests at heart, and that they can do so tenderly and compassionately, then you can ask them like, "What am I missing?" Um, and you know, I think I think Rob Bell and his wife wrote a book together. They did an interview about it, and uh, and um, I think it was Rob in an interview defined marriage as a second set of eyes, <laughs> you know, um, another, another person to look at you and say, I think you're not being honest with yourself about this. Um, and, uh, and if two people can do that for each other in a place of safety, that's beautiful belonging. Oliver writes, the truth sets free. Once I really dug deep, I realized how many secrets are actually in place. It's humbling, isn't it? It's it humbling is a really good word for it. Um, because once you realize how many secrets you've been keeping from yourself, the humility of it is, and how many more are there? <laughs> and if I was sort of deceiving myself about those secrets, what am I now deceiving myself about? And you enter into this sort of holy uncertainty about yourself um, that doesn't have to be terrifying, but can simply be humbling. And so I love that word, Oliver. Thanks for using it. Sonali writes, Hi Kelly, good to see you. Today I talked to a therapist about taking a break from therapy. In the conversation, the therapist says, I don't go deep enough, I hold back, but I am not sure what I am holding back. Probably ties in with keeping secrets with oneself. Sonali, the timing of this conversation might be good for you. Um, 
if you trust your therapist, if you trust that they have your best interests at heart, um, it probably does mean that you're, and this is a, a juncture of therapy that every client comes to where the reason that they came in is mostly resolved, um, the crisis is, is, is mostly passed, the emotions have steadied, and, um, and now, the, now the real transformation can begin. And that, that being on the cusp of real transformation usually involves lettings, letting some secrets out of the unconscious and into our consciousness and talking about it. So, um, so that may be happening. Um, that might be going on. Your therapist might be right on um, and encourage you to keep talking about it together. Marie writes, had an opportunity to share some of the harder to share moments of the parenting journey that I'm less than proud of with someone clearly in my circle belonging. It may be less risky than if I were with someone else, but my friend received it so wholeheartedly and responded with her own secrets as well. That's a really, it's just what a great example, Marie, because we live in a, we live in a culture where in theory, like, you know, everyone's being real honest about their stuff. Um, but I, I, you get the feeling that everyone's being honest with the stuff they feel comfortable being honest with. And the stuff that's really uncomfortable, we're not doing it. And we probably shouldn't be doing it in, in wide open public. We should be doing what you're doing, Marie. We should be finding one person that we feel like we belong to and and connecting and saying, this this stuff I'd really like to keep secret, but here it is. Um, and to have her reciprocate in that way is just sort of an affirmation that it really is a place of belonging. It's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing it. Stephanie writes, I had a deep secret that I kept for over a decade. If it popped up, I'd quickly dismiss it because it was so ugly and dark. Then, while doing a study in our small group, we were challenged to share our secrets with a trusted accountability partner. When I finally mustered up the courage to ask someone, she laughed and said, I'm not great at being an accountability partner. <laughs> Relieved, I thought I'd done my part. Sadly, the angst didn't go away just because I was willing to share my secrets. I finally found freedom when I actually spoke my secret out to another, and I didn't die. I received healing. It was amazing to still be loved, even with my ugliness shown. I felt more authentic. Well, I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's... Um we have to be able to acknowledge the secrets we keep to ourselves. We then have to be able to find somebody, not just to tell it to, but somebody who can abide with us in that secret. And of course, that's part of what therapy does. It teaches you, oh, I'm, I'm worth abiding with in the midst of the, the darkest, ugliest stuff I've got. Um, and if this is true of this person, then it might be true of, uh, of people out in the world as well. Um, so what a blessing um, that you were able to find you know, Stephanie, someone out in the world, um, that's belonging. You got it. Well, thanks again, everybody. Um, this is, this, dis <laughs> this discussion, uh, reveals, I think the courage of everybody involved. It takes a lot of courage to admit that we have secrets, for instance, that we don't even like to admit to ourselves. And so I'm just grateful for all of you. I know this is going to be really helpful for people listening. Um, so let's transition now into this week's topic and reading an exercise. Before we get started, though, let me remind you. So we only have two more weeks left in these months of loving, these four months of the year that we've dedicated to cultivating our circles of belonging. Uh, in these last two weeks, the topics and exercises will be applicable to your personal relationships, but you're going to see that they will also have implications for expanding your concept of belonging altogether, sort of nudging you toward an awareness of the ways that we all belong to each other all of the time and how we can begin to act as if that's true. So um, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's begin that now uh, with week 34 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is called, Let's Hold Each Other Like We're Dying. About a week before Robin Williams committed suicide, my friend was in a car accident. The car was totaled. 
He texted me a picture of it and let me know everyone was okay. Reassured of his safety, the next question on my mind was this. Whose fault was it? Then Robin Williams committed suicide, a shocking, tragic loss, and instantly Twitter and Facebook lit up with debates about depression and suicide and illness versus choice and who was at fault. Mental health debates, theological debates, existential debates. Apparently, we all like to look for fault and to assign blame. And of course, we need to talk about such things. Dialogue is essential. But the debate happened so fast, there was little real dialogue. Why is conflict so often our first response to tragedy? Sometimes we fight so we don't have to feel. Sometimes we trade jeers so we don't have to trade tears. Robin Williams and depression, police shootings and racism, ISIS and war, Gaza and religion, school shootings and guns, Ebola and safety and social privilege, tragedy strikes and we instantly light up cyberspace with arguments about what is to blame and who is at fault and how to fix the problem. It helps us to feel in control, if someone is to blame, then there's a cause and an effect, and the universe isn't random or capricious. It helps us to feel blameless. If the other guy is at fault, then we don't have to bear the burden of guilt. And most commonly and honorably, finding fault and assigning blame can help us solve the problem. That's a good thing. When things go wrong, we want to fix them for the future. But when we try to fix things fast, we never get to feel them fully. And that's a real problem. Because the solutions to our most pressing concerns don't lie within the heated exchange of our ideas. They lie at the bottom of our grief. If we don't get better at grieving, we can't get better at loving and living. For instance, when Quinn was only a few months old, we took him to the pediatrician for a routine wellness exam. It didn't end in a routine way. She was concerned about a condition called cranial stenosis, in which the plates in the skull fuse prematurely. She told us the condition could result in physical disfigurement, neurological complications, even death. And then she told us we'd have to wait months for a definitive diagnosis. Surgery could not be performed until he was much older, so it was prudent to delay x-rays until they would be safer for his developing body. Months of waiting on our son's fate, months of WebMD searches, months in which I could barely look at the little guy. Every time I saw his head, my insides lit up with panic. Then one day, as I was driving and praying, I became aware I was stuck in the bargaining stage of grief and I began to wonder what kind of sadness lay just beneath my anxiety. So I pulled over, took a deep breath, found a place of stillness within me, and I waited for the sadness to come. And come it did. Deep waves of grief about the future of my little boy. The depth of it surprised me, because it wasn't limited to grief about his potential diagnosis. Upwelled grief about the fact that even if his life goes perfectly, he will one day be gone. And even if... And even if everything goes perfectly, I'll be gone before him. Grief that life is fragile and uncertain and limited, and that's just the way it is. As the waves of sadness ebbed, I drove home, entered the house, saw my little boy, and for the first time in weeks, the sight of him didn't trigger anxiety. It triggered tenderness. I reached out and I held him tight, not to protect him, but to love him more deeply because I knew I couldn't protect him. At the bottom of our grief lies the solution to our problems because at the bottom of our grief always lies the inexorable desire to hold each other like we're dying. Can you imagine a world in which everyone was holding each other like they're dying? What if when Robin Williams died, we all just paused our debates for a day to feel the grief of it? What if the sorrow sent us into an embrace of the depressed and despairing people we love? What if when we saw the image of the Australian school kid turned ISIS soldier holding the decapitated head of a Syrian militant, we paused for an hour to feel the grief of it? 
What if we experience that horrendous violence as a natural extension of the subtle violence we commit every day in our families and our friendships and in every brush with a stranger on the road? How might our anger dissolve into tenderness? What if when our fear rises up about Ebola patients being transported to our country, we dwell just a little while on their humanity? What if we closed our eyes and imagined our closest loved one half a world away, bleeding from the inside out? I wonder if our anxiety would give way to compassion. I wonder if we'd want to bring them back ourselves. We need to become a world that gets good at grieving. We have to surrender to it. We have to feel our way to the bottom of our sorrow so we can get to the bottom of this mystery we call love and life. Because at the bottom of the mystery is a singular reality. We were, all of us, made for each other. And we are here to hold each other like we're dying. So that is the reading. Uh, just a little light note for your Wednesday morning. <laughs> um, I just want to add here, first of all, that um, I don't say any of this lightly. Um, I, as, as I read that, I have this other voice in my head with all these objections rising up. Um, and one of the things I just want to say is, I know some of us are dealing with some uh, very real um, and even terminal illnesses in our relationships. And you don't have to like project ahead to get into this mindset. You're in the middle of it. Um, and I don't want to minimize your pain. Um, what I, I think what I'm trying to say is that there is a way to redeem that pain um, and that the rest of us might just have to work a little harder to, to be able to get into the place where we can redeem some of that pain. Um, maybe the other thing I want to say, and I, I touched on it a couple times in this, this week's reading, is that um, this is not about sort of surrendering to the world the way it is and just letting it be. Um, you know, uh, one, one of my favorite people in the world, one of my spiritual mentors, Richard Rohr, um, he founded and runs the Center for Action and Contemplation. But what he'll say is that those two things go in tandem and, and healthy action always proceeds from healthy contemplation. And uh, I think that's what I'm urging here. Um, is that we spend a little bit of time contemplating our, our mortality um, so we can engage our reality more effectively, um, engage with our people more effectively, engage with humanity more effectively. Um, and I, and I, and I want to narrow that idea of contemplation, not just contemplation in general, but contemplation of our mortality, um, contemplation of our finitude, of our, um, our transience. Um, I, I'm aware that we... I, if, I, if I reflect back upon my collective experiences of weddings and funerals, they're very different. Um, weddings are fun and they're joyous and they're awesome. I love going to weddings. But there's also this like sort of subtle undertone around weddings. I mean, if you've ever planned one with family members, you know, like priorities get totally out of whack. It becomes all about perfection and production and who's sitting with who. And like all of a lot of the pettiness in a family will sort of rise up in, in the midst of a, a wedding. But in the midst of a funeral, um, differences are sort of put aside. <laughs> um, a sense of connection, a sense of commonality rises up. Um, and I think that's what's happening there. We're being forced to sort of contemplate our mortality um, and it's straightening out our priorities and relationships. So um, so this week I wanna talk more about that. I'd be curious, you know, for instance, if you reflected on your own experiences of weddings and funerals, if you had the same experience, um, did, or are other areas in your life where you've been forced, even perhaps right now in your life, where you've been forced to sort of spend some time contemplating our mortality? Um, how has that shifted your priorities? How has that shift you from a place of 
um, reactive anger to more of a place of patience and tenderness. Um, how has that worked for you? I'm curious. And while you're thinking more about what you want to say, um, I didn't plan it this way. It just so happens that I um, I published a blog post this morning that that connects really pretty closely with this theme. Um, and uh, I'll go ahead and read that too here while you're thinking about what you want to say and uh, we'll go forward from there. It's called, Can You See Yourself in All of Them? She stands there small as any eight-year-old hidden in the towering aisles of the toy store. She picks up the magic eight ball and shakes it. It comes up, yes. She sighs with relief. The question asked by this little girl of this little toy, will I ever fit in this world? In her, I see me. He hobbles forward, looking bewildered, a 10-year-old searching the crowd for help. He falls into the crushed rock and shattered shells battered by time into sand. The tender underside of his foot sliced from fore to aft, skin parted, blood flowing. He grits his teeth and calls it the Red Sea. He's a little wounded and a little brave. In him, I see me. The teenager wakes early before the sun, before his parents, pours a bowl of cereal for himself. He gathers his thermos full of ice and water, his sandwich full of turkey and cheese, and his heart full of questions and peace. He heads into the fields, into the eventually burning sun. He gives his day to the earth. In him, I see me. The old man moves slowly, carefully. He looks at the ground as he walks, scanning the terrain for danger. He picks his way around a rock, big as a boulder to an ant, big as a boulder to a man approaching his second century. One slip and he's bedridden for a month, for a year, for the rest of his life. Fragile and he knows it. In him, I see me. The father of two is covered in wood shavings and sweat. He's got 10 minutes to finish felling the tree, then he must go to take his boy to basketball camp, to make sure his daughter isn't staring into a screen all day, to try to keep it all together, to rest his weary bones. In him, I see me. The woman stands on the corner, her mouth slouched to one side, her eyes too far apart, her bra strap showing, shouting at the traffic passing by for no apparent reason. Her words are slouched like her mouth. Something is off here, perhaps a chromosome. Her hands rest on a stroller in front of her, that baby in it hollers like her mother, a different kind of sadness. In both of them, I see me. The disheveled man lays on the curb on his right side, his right arm stretched out as a pillow for his head, his resting place a street corner, his home the streets. His eyes are open, but not open. Looking at him, a little boy's heart breaks. The boy looks downward at his treasured leftover food, turns around, crouches down, gives away his bounty, and enters into the gift of downward mobility. In both of them, I see me. The mother reaches out as her life is pulled away from her. Her little boy reaches out as his mother is pulled away from him. Their fingertips brush. They cross the border together. She was smuggling him into a better life. Instead, abandonment was smuggled into his heart. She the failing parent, he the forlorn child. In both of them, I see me. He shouts at the powerful, hypocrites, he cries 19 times in a row. They dismiss him. So he makes sure they cannot ignore him. He threads the whip ahead of time enters the temple, tips the tables of the money changers who have turned the holy place into the Vegas place. A bunch of men using their power and wealth to gain more power and wealth, one man using the authority of the universe to resist them. In both of them, I can see a little bit of me. Then he hangs there, his entire body a Red Sea. He hangs there, showing us that death and dignity can go together. He hangs there, showing us that how you live is how you die, and he lived with grace. They stand there at the foot of the tree, mocking him, spitting at him, slicing him. He looks heavenward and wishes forgiveness upon them. In both of them, I can see a little bit of me. The Republican wishes for more justice at the borders. The Democrat wishes for more mercy at the borders. The Republican wants to see unborn life protected. The Democrat wants to see unhonored life protected. 
The Republican wants to preserve tradition. The Democrat wants to preserve compassion. The Republican wants a job that can support his family. The Democrat does too. Somewhere a Republican has cancer growing in his pancreas. Somewhere a Democrat does too. Every Republican will have to say goodbye to this one life. Every Democrat will too. In both of them, I try to see a little bit of me. And when you can see a little bit of yourself in both of them, when you can see at least a hint of yourself in all of them, in the words of the wise man, it is finished. Oliver writes, mortality offsets taking life and loved ones for granted. I always avoided funerals, I think, because I didn't want to come to terms with my unawares of what I had been blessed with. It takes awareness from guys like you. Oh, well, thank you for that, Oliver. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm increasingly like aware as we're talking today that, um, that our first topic of the day, the secrets that we keep from ourselves, and our second topic, awareness of our mortality, um, go together. <laughs> that our mortality is one of the biggest secrets that we keep from ourselves. Um, we keep the secret by sending it off to nursing homes and uh, uh, by Botoxing it and, uh, you know, by pretending it's never going to happen and trying to ignore it. And we keep that secret. Um, and it's a secret we desperately need to tell ourselves. Um, because when you're in on the secret, there's no question that your priorities and your relationships will be straightened out. And there's no question that you'll have more compassion for your fellow man or woman. <laughs> so yeah, I think these two go together. Marielle writes, I feel like to me it's the reverse. I do feel sad when someone dies, but I think my default is to avoid grief. I don't cry until years later. Thinking of my family members dying pains me a lot though. Um, yeah, Marielle, I wrote a blog post maybe a year ago, um, about how one of the greatest gifts of being human is being able to grieve in advance. That um, we're, the only, we're the only creature on the planet that knows it's going to happen. Um, and so there may be actually be a redemptive gift in not, not waiting to grieve, but grieving now, grieving ahead of time. Um, it gives us a chance to live our lives differently. Um, and that's a hard, painful reality to face, a secret to let in, but it's, it's one that if we do, um, has a tremendous potential for redemption of our lives. Sonali writes, it can get disturbing though. Sometimes I look at my mom and in my head, I think she's not going to be around forever, even though she's hale and hearty right now. And it's not a comfortable thought. No, no, no. It's not a comfortable thought. Um, it's not a comfortable thought. It's the reason that, I mean, it's, Sonali, you're being generous. It's the least comfortable thought, right? It's the least comfortable thought. It's the thing we least want to think about. Um, I want I want to see an alternate universe. I want to see a Twitter feed in an alternate alternate universe um, where only people who are grieving their mortality, who are by grieving, I mean, anger is a part of grief, right? And denial is a part of grief, not wanting to think about it. And bargaining is a part of grief. But the real heart of grief is the sorrow, right? Um, I want to see a Twitter feed where only people who are in the midst of the sorrow about their mortality are allowed to, to tweet and see what that Twitter feed looks like. I just, I think it's so important, even though it's really disturbing. Oh, Sonali, what a beautiful thought. Perhaps I also need to stop my car by the roadside and feel whatever feelings lie under that thought and worry. Well, and Sonali, you, you, you just articulated it really beautifully, that those are the stages of grief. First stage is actually denial. I don't want to think about 
my mortality, our mortality, right? That's number one. Number two is anger, um, anger that it exists, anger that we are limited, finite material that will no longer be material at some point. Um, then there's this anxious bargaining stage of trying to change that reality. Um, uh, and a lot of times what we do is we, we sort of cycle through those first three stages, you know, uh, deny, I'm not going to think about it. I'm angry. I project my anger, take it out on everybody else. I'm anxious and, and bargaining and trying to figure out how to, how, how, how to create a different reality for myself, you know, and you cycle through those three. And the real test is, do you pull over to the roadside and let yourself settle down underneath those three and into the next stage, which is sorrow. Um, and that, that what happens in the fifth stage, the last stage of grief, grief is acceptance or peace. And that if we can continue to sort of settle down into our sorrow and through it, we come out the other side in a place of peacefulness. Um, in the same way that I was able to go hug Quinn out of a sense of peacefulness. Um, and so, yeah, peace only lies in that direction, downward through our sorrow. Um, if we think of all of life as grief, uh, all of relationships even as a grieving process and eventual letting go, then if we aren't willing to go through that sorrow of the grief, we never get to peace in them. Brenda writes, wow, my thoughts are too much to give words to today. I'm willing to, to wait and see what comes this week. Good for you. Good for you, Brenda. Good for you. Just the, the strength and the courage to, to say, hey, these feelings are strong. I'm just going to pay attention to them for a week. Marie writes, it's such a conscious, intentional effort to allow oneself to experience the grief. It's one thing to find a moment in private, but even more so if it arises in the presence of others. Well, Marie... I think you have such a you have such a knack for pointing us at sort of hallmarks of belonging, <laughs> and I think that's definitely one of them. Um, if we if we have people that we feel comfortable grieving with, um, then we know we're in a place of belonging. Um, and usually, to be honest with you, this is something I tell people all the time, uh, and it's like everything else with belonging. You belong to the people who let you be you you know, and appreciate you being you, which means the way that you grieve, even if it's not the way that they would grieve in particular, they give you space to do that. They don't force you to grieve in a particular way. They don't ask you to think and feel certain things. They just let you sort of go through your process. And, and those are the people that we belong to. Trias writes, recently the body of a former classmate's daughter was located. Oh my goodness, nine years missing. I wasn't close, but her grief is palpable. I often feel frozen in reaching out, conflicted in joining public memorials and vigils. As a society, her grief is something we use to feel connected, but we are helping by asking her to so publicly cope. With, are, but are we helping by asking her to so publicly cope with her own? I see how bogged down in the anger phase and the sadness strikes. Yeah, I, I think Trius, I think you're getting at something really important, which grieving isn't a public endeavor um, for the most part. Um, honoring is a public endeavor, right? Memorials, funerals. Um, but, you know, the family goes off together after the funeral. <laughs> the place of belonging tightens, and the people with whom you feel most safe and most comfortable um, truly grieving, those are, those are the people where the real grief happens with. Um, you know, anger is a safer stage of, of grief, and so it makes sense that in public maybe we'd stay in a more angry stage of that. We need to be able to grieve um, in, in tighter circles of belonging than that. So this conversation is, is, is hitting me somewhere tender today, and um, 
it's hard for me to, to, to end it, to move on to the practice, but, but I want to do that in the interest of time, and, uh, and then we'll continue it on the other side of the reading. So here's this week's practice. Week 34 practice. I spend many of my days writing about love and belonging, and yet, on a daily basis, I forget how temporary we all are and how much I want to cherish my people, and all people, while I can. My priorities get all out of whack. So should I try to live every day as if it's the last day of my life? I don't think so. Usually this idea is unhelpful. If it was the last day of my life, I'd do all sorts of nutty things you'd only do if you had nothing to lose. I wouldn't go to work, I wouldn't do the dishes, I wouldn't clean the toilets. If I lived every day as if it was the last day of my life, my house would be a cesspool until it eventually got foreclosed upon. So I think we need to tweak that wisdom just a little. What if we lived every day as if we're dying? Not tomorrow or the next day, but exactly one year from now. We'd still have to go to work, wash the dishes, clean the toilets. But how would we love each other differently, more deeply? If we focused on loving each other as if we were dying, what would our love start to look like? I think it's worth trying because the truth is we are all dying. Someday death will come for each of us. Until then, let's care for each other in light of that truth. Of course, it is impossible to consistently do so. When one kid wants juice and another is hitting his sister and the dinner is burning and everyone needs to get in the car for soccer practice, you are much more likely to want to end a life or two than to cherish those lives. But let's spend a week trying anyway. This week, make a conscious, intentional effort to relate to everyone as if they have a terminal disease. I don't say this lightly. I know some of us have loved ones who are actually dying. I'm not mocking or minimizing the pain of that. I'm simply trying to harness the little bit of beauty that can emerge from our grief. This week, hold your people like they're dying. So, (laughs) um, I think I've said this probably half a dozen times um, in in our time together this year and on this podcast. And the thing I've said half a dozen times is I think that's the toughest exercise yet. Um, Well, all those previous six are distant seconds, if you ask me, to this one. Um, and, but this, I can make a promise to you. I can make it. There are very few promises that I can make. Um, but with, with grieving, the promise I can make confidently is that if you're faithful to this exercise, um, by next week, you will feel, you will have had moments of peace. I won't say you feel consistently peaceful. You'll have had moments of peace that, um, surpass all understanding. Brenda writes, grief can happen even in little things in a 24-hour period. Example, yesterday, I missed my daughter's college orientation day because I was having a spell of vertigo. I had to miss something special to me just to rest again. Acceptance is the better stage of grief. Um, Brenda, you're teaching us all something um, with your own disappointment and pain and grief. Um, You know, you're, you're... surrendering right to the losses and limitations that we can't do anything about um entering into that entering going through the sorrow of that the loss the resistance to it um entering into the place of acceptance about that as you say um you're teaching us so thank you stephanie writes oh my gosh the stages of grief remind me so much of my process of recovery after infidelity the acceptance surrender and peace of reframing the crisis into a space where i now get to help others is worthwhile i love the expression that something has to die for something else to live for me it was the death of an old marriage of secrets to a renewed marriage of transparency and truth in order to experience true intimacy 
uh, yeah, that, you know, the, the, the resurrection wisdom of that, right? That something has to die, uh, for something new to arise. Um, it's, it's built into the world, that whole truth. And, uh, and, and, and we just don't want to go through the death, <laughs> do we? We just don't want to go through it to get to new life. Um, and for good reason, you know, um, each of you is sharing examples from your lives that, that, you know, most of us just want to resist forever. Um, the reality of, and, uh, admire your courage for going into them and going through them. Shelley writes, this is like the miracle question as reflected in solution-focused brief therapy. You have such a beautiful way to present that question. Shelley, what's the question? Could you share that with us? I'd, I'd love to hear it. Um, the miracle question. Can you say more about that? I, my, my knowledge is limited here. Shelley writes, imagine coming home from work, eating dinner, and going to sleep only to wake in the morning with all of your problems solved. What would that day look like? Oh, <laughs> that's the question. That's so good. Oh, yeah. So good. Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. Let me read it again for everybody. Imagine coming home from work, eating dinner, and going to sleep only to wake in the morning with all of your problems solved. What would that day look like? Mm, so good. Sonali writes, how can you feel strong, courageous enough to go through the sorrow? I worry, what if I go into depression or something? I feel tired of too much inward looking. How does one balance it out, find support in other things as one is exploring one's sorrow? Um, Sonali, it's such a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, I think one of the main reasons that I see people resist going into the sorrow stage of grief is that they think that it will turn into depression. Um, and what I say is that actually um, sincere sorrow associated with loss, sincere grief related sorrow, um, surrender to the sorrow um, results in, in peace and acceptance. Resistance of the sorrow results in depression, actually. Um, so depression is not some intense, prolonged form of that sorrow. Um, it's the result, it's the, the emotional exhaustion um, that comes from resisting the sorrow and the reality of it. Um, and if you can be with somebody, whether it's someone in your circles of belonging or a therapist, and, um, and walking through that sorrow together, someone who can can help you kind of notice this is where you're resisting it um, this is what helps you surrender to it um, this is what helps you feel it um, this is what is leading to you blocking you feeling it um, then you'll move through it um, it's the beautiful thing about grief it's like a, it's a river that ushers you along um, it's when we dam it up by resisting it that that uh, that you know we, we develop a reservoir of depression essentially so um, so yeah so that's my encouragement to you. Um, it's a great question. Stephanie adds, Sonali, I worry about that too. Then I reflect that as fragile as we are, we are also much more resilient than we believe. I've surprised myself with the strength I've gained going through the sorrow. Well, and and I really appreciate that addition, Stephanie, because they're the, the best way to develop a confidence in your courage is to grieve. Um, because so much of so much of fear is about losing things um, but if we have developed through experience the confidence that I can go through the grief of loss 
then number one, it begins to remove some of the fears of losing. Um, and it leaves us with, again, a deep sense of not just about peace about the loss, but a peace about who we are. Like, okay, I can handle it. I can go through that. I can endure that. And what we discover is so much of our anxiety isn't really about the loss itself, but about can we handle it? Can we go through it? Can we survive that emotionally? And once we know we can, um, a lot of the anxiety about life begins to bleed away and it's replaced with a sense of courage. So um, yeah, I'm with you, Stephanie. I think as we practice grief, um, that sort of confidence begins to build. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I, the, the lyrics of one of my favorite songs from the past year are brought to mind. I thought I'd read those in conclusion for us today. Um, it's a song called uh, If We Were Vampires, bear with me, If We Were Vampires by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. Um, and these are the lyrics. It's not the long flowing dress that you're in or the light coming off of your skin. The fragile heart you protected for so long or the mercy in your sense of right and wrong. It's not your hand searching slow in the dark, or your nails leaving love's watermark. It's not the way you talk me off the roof, your questions like directions to the truth. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely, one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone, or one day you'll be gone. If we were vampires and death was a joke, we'd go out on the sidewalk and smoke and laugh at all the lovers and their plans. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Maybe time running out is a gift. I'll work hard till the end of my shift and give you every second I can find and hope it isn't me who's left behind. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone or you'll be gone. So with those lyrics, let's wrap up here for today. Um, Next week, we're going to be in the final week in these months of loving and cultivating belonging. Um, It is a much lighter (laughs) week, um, and it's going to be week 35 of the year of listening, loving, and living, and it's going to be entitled The Kindness Challenge. Um, Until then, remember, you are lovable, you are mortal, and so is everyone else. Thanks again for joining us on The Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.